Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser with DryEyeCoach.com, and today I'm joined by uh, expert Dr. Paul Karpecki. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. How are you? Wonderful, Whitney. Thank you for the invitation. Always honored to be part of Dry Eye Coach and to be able to contribute to such a great program that helps so many doctors. And so I'm doing well, and, and again, thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. You're always welcome on the program. So what we're going to do uh, is talk a little bit about amniotic membranes and just to sort of get your perspective on it and talk about some new research that has been presented uh, recently. And, you know, dry eye, as we've talked about before, you and I together, is a very complex multifactorial condition. There's a lot of different treatment options that are out there, and amniotic membrane is certainly one of the treatment options. I don't think that as many doctors uh, see that as a useful option as it probably is in my practice and in yours, and I'd kind of like to address that with you today. So dry eye has become prevalent, and whether it was always as prevalent and we've just raised our level of awareness or we've seen an increase in number of cases is somewhat debatable, but how has your approach to treating dry eye changed over the years? And um, also, as you kind of ponder that question, how does cryopreserve amniotic membranes sort of play a role in that? That's a great question. You know, my practice has changed quite a bit, and I've been doing, I'm involved in dry eye for, for 23 years, it's hard to believe now, as kind of a focal point of, of the practice. And, you know, it's interesting to think, can things really change much because you're dealing with a lot of severe patients at the very beginning, but it has. There's just so much more awareness of the field of dry eye out there. Companies have done a good job of educating patients, and so you get much larger numbers coming in. And with that, you get quite a bit of variety of patients as well, more advanced ocular surface disease, corneal disease, uh, those that are dry eye and those that aren't. So I think that has evolved quite substantially. I had, in fact, just yesterday in clinic, I had three patients right in a row that presented with eyelids that looked terrible, corneas that all needed amniotic membrane, a uh, lot of uh, distortion, a lot of uh, irregularity. And the first one was uh, discoid lupus. The second one was ocular pemphigoid. And the third was graft-versus-host disease. So interestingly, if you looked at the cornea, you would have thought they were all the same condition. And they were three very different conditions with three very different management. And that's what we're seeing more of. But at the same time, we're also getting more of the patients coming in a little earlier, thank goodness, because we know this is a progressive disease and we have to do something about it earlier, not the stages I just described. And so I'm finding that I'm using more aggressive therapies sooner. Uh, it, I just know that what happens if I don't. I know that they progress. I know it's difficult to reverse things. It's better to hold things where there are to keep the nerves at the same level of morphology, not allow them to advance to be dendritic or other issues. So the big change, I would say, is that we're seeing patients sooner and we're treating them more aggressively. And by I mean more aggressively, I'm talking about just not artificial tears, just a little bit more to kind of control the disease at whatever stage they're at. Right. You know, it's funny. The word aggressive, I think, can be interpreted so many different ways. And, you know, as, as we talk to colleagues about treating dry aggressively, I think they think it's something beyond their scope. And like you just said, it's really beyond artificial tears is considered aggressive. And I think there's plenty of opportunity to do that in primary care practices across the U.S., you know, and, and really worldwide. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's um, a great point. It's hard to believe that aggressive means more than artificial tears, and yet that is exactly what we're saying. You summed it up perfectly. Right. So what 
uh, are your typical tools in the toolbox? Now that's a really broad question considering the number of new and emerging treatments that we have in dry care. But what are some just, you know, I know you certainly can't touch on all of them, and there's plenty that are out there that we won't have time to address. But just off the top of your head, a few things that are your go-tos in your toolbox. Sure, and I'd really just real quickly break it down into the, you know, the two main forms, as was even outlined in TFOS dues to you know, your aqueous deficient versus your evaporative. Even though there's many more forms out there, we'll take the two broader categories. You know, I certainly think you have to have some sort of way of doing something for obstruction. You know, thermal pulsation down to you know, a hydrating compress you use every day, like a brooder mask or something along those lines. I think you have to do something for debridement. You have to have a tool that helps in that. I think that's a key toolbox kit. <clears throat> you definitely want to keep the biofilm controlled, whether it's mechanical or plus at home. You want to keep inflammation controlled. So that could be your cyclosporins, your lifidograss, your corticosteroids. But you also may get a better impact when you also treat them somewhat systemically, which could be omega fatty acids or even oral macrolides in certain cases. And then you need to have the tools that get you, you know, to the next level, and that's more your aqueous deficient, even in a moderate stage. These would be your biologics. Your Talia serum would be critical to have access to, especially amniotic membrane. I definitely lean towards cryopreserve, just having performed about 200 now and seeing all the types that I've used in my office. It's, it's very clear that that's my key toolbox one. And then, and then you should still have a host of palliative therapies, as I mentioned, that kind of help you out throughout all of this. But you, you, you really need to address you know, a, a fair spectrum of the most common forms of the disease, and you have to include everything from, as we talked about earlier, whether it's thermal pulsation, IPL, or something that kind of addresses it, plus at-home treatments the obstruction all the way up to your biologics. Right. It's such a diverse you know, spectrum, really, of the disease and then equally the treatments. How does uh, using an amniotic membrane sort of work its way into that for you? Where do you, where do you think that kind of lies? Yeah, and that's an essential toolbox kit item. And, and because where it lies is in preventing further progression. That's, that's probably the best way I could say it. Inflammation it's impossible to fully measure the level of where it's at. We know it can be really high, and, and you could do diagnostic tests to show you really high levels uh, that are present. And so we know that plays a role, but sometimes even topicals, whether it's because of lack of compliance or couldn't afford the medication or it wasn't enough, doesn't always get you there. And so inflammation, as it continues to advance, will lead to nerve damage, will lead to chronic pain, could eventually even lead to neuropathic issues, which are quite severe and almost impossible to take care of. And so in the end, what you're left with, unfortunately, is an advancing disease that's very much very difficult, if not impossible, to reverse. So you have to have something that, you know, is, the, is ultimately going to stop that progression. Now, there are times in a mild case to maybe even moderate where I might try the more conventional therapies, but I also realize, and I've realized over the last years especially, that you have to get to the point where if you're noticing it's still progressing or it's already at a fairly high advanced level or there's a lot of corneal desiccation or involvement, that includes just superficial punctate keratopathy that's central, you're going to have to have a tool that can keep that controlled. And I don't know of one that's better than cryopreserved amniotic membrane. I think you raise a, a really good point. Uh, as I talk to colleagues uh, about their diagnostics, they'll say, I put in fluorescein and I saw some corneal staining. And the corneal staining, a lot of times to you know, my fellow doctors as I'm talking to them, and you may have experienced this as well, it doesn't seem that remarkable. And in terms of dry disease, that's, you know, that's a pretty remarkable finding to have corneal staining, as you said, central corneal staining. And I think that does 
lead us to the necessity for more aggressive treatment. And I don't know that that's a trigger point for a lot of doctors out there. What's your impression? You said it perfectly. I mean, you are spot on. You know, we, we were kind of taught 15, 20 years ago that you look for corneal staining to make your diagnosis. And like you said, if you have grade 2 staining or you have any central involvement, any macro staining, any confluent, and that's fairly common, you're at least moderate to severe dry eye on the guideline recommend, you know, recommendations. And so, you, you know, that's the thing we didn't realize is that there are, you know, maybe 30 million people that are less than that but have dry eye disease. And then there's that group that's really your advanced, you know, 3 million or so patients. And so if that's all we're treating, yeah, we've really let the disease get way too far. Now, those patients absolutely have to be looking at cryopreserved amniotic membrane and biologics. But I think we have to, you know, even prevent getting to that level as opposed to that being the first level of diagnosis. Right. You know, there are a lot of different products out there, and this, you know, holds true for a lot of different treatments that, that we address. There's a lot of different providers. When you consider that, how does using specifically cryopreserved or something like Procara, you know, how do you think those, that product is differentiated from the, the rest? There, uh, the differentiation I've been able to kind of, you know, look at firsthand, meaning by clinical experience, or when you do a lot of dry eye like you do and, and I do, and, and, you know, you're in the hundreds of amniotic membrane cases, there's going to be some where a cryopreserved, you know, it doesn't fit, maybe a small fissure of a patient or it just didn't kind of get to center where the, you know, the ring was lying kind of on the lesion. So there are times when I've had to take it out and go to a, uh, you know, a dry form and I've tried different forms and many times when I do bandage lenses and, and there's no question there is a enormous difference. And I think the nice thing about getting to talk about these things is that when doctors go to try it themselves, they'll, they'll, they'll relate to it and say, you know, you're right, I did see there was just a huge difference. That doesn't mean there may not be a place for those. doesn't mean that, you know, if, you can't, like if I can't fit a Procara, I may look to using a dry level. But there are variances. And in the three or four that I've tried to date, I would say some are no better than a bandage contact lens. Some are slightly better. And I, I think there's some that are actually worse. I've had two infections now in patients where I've uh, put on a cryopreserved, followed non-cryopreserved, a dry or dehydrated form and then put the managed lens on it. And so I think you have to be a little more careful in that category. And, and I think you have to be a little more careful because there's also a risk of, of overuse in the dehydrated forms because they don't quite do as much and you've got to put a new one in there. I'd rather just do what's going to be most effective and allow it to, to do what it needs to do and not have to repeat it so often. Now, the difference from a physiological standpoint, though, is that by cryopreserving, you maintain the long chain HA. And that's really kind of a simple way of describing it, but really, I think, is what we understand. We understand hyaluronic acid. We understand long chains allow more, you know, more coiling, so it allows to get more concentration, more wettability, uh, just overall better effects on inflammation, as well as, obviously, on, on nerves and, and on healing. And so I think that's the key element that, that gets affected. And we've seen that in some of the new recent research, like the Tommy John study and other ones, that really show this is a different product, not in the same category. doesn't mean the others are completely eliminated. You just have to be a little more careful in the dehydrated forms. But my opinion is when I see a lesion or I see staining or I see something that requires Am, a cryo uh, requires amniotic membrane, I'm going to go to a cryopreserve first because I know that's best for the patient. And if it was my eyes or my parents' eyes, I'd want to put in what is best and then look to alternatives should I need them. Right. You referenced the uh, Tommy John study. You know, could you give our listeners a little bit of a breakdown on the study? 
in yeah, your impression. I know you have favorite studies, Whitney. I always love you. I do. <laughs> this one actually is one of my favorite in, in a unique way. It's fairly straightforward and easy to read. I kind of like studies that to a degree uh, do that because they, you know, you go through it and you're able to glance at it fairly quickly and kind of put it all together and, and that seems to help. But in this study, what they ended up doing is they, they so it wasn't a large study, it was about 20 patients, and they randomized them, uh, one group of these patients, and these were all level two to four on the ITF, the International Task Force, or dues to, TFOS dues to grading. So these are patients that had some level of corneal staining, even if it was fairly mild. You know, stage three is central staining or confluent, and stage four are your severe cases like we just talked, talked about your uh, graft-versus-host, your Stevens-Johnson syndromes, things like that are in four. So all these patients were between uh, dues, TFOS dues two and four labeling. And, and half of them got the, the bio-tissue, the cryopreserved amniotic memory, and the other were allowed to continue their, their treatment and, again, considered aggressive treatment. Now, again, by aggressive treatment, they were things like artificial tears, cyclosporin, lefitograss, corticosteroids, but it included autologous serum if they were on that. It included some biologics. And so it wasn't the case of saying, okay, this group's on saline and this group is going to be, you know, in, in cryopreserved amniotic membrane. We're going to keep maximum therapy for the disease the way we've always treated these patients. And then we're going to take a look at them and see what the effects are on signs and symptoms. And the key things for signs were topographical changes, corneal sensitivity, and especially corneal nerve density by using confocal microscopy to get an idea of what's changing there and are we actually able to have an effect on, on nerve regeneration. That was what I was so excited. And so 17 of the patients were able to complete the study, and the study was a three-month study, if I'm not mistaken. I think they looked at them at one month and then again at three months. And they also looked at symptoms. The symptoms were speed score, pain scores, you know, fluorescein staining, tear break of time, and other things that were evaluated by the investigator in this case. And as they looked at it, what was really, really pretty awesome, not overly surprising though, what was surprising was the level of improvement. Basically, the traditional measures were kind of keeping the patient where they needed to be. When you get to that level, you know, especially your, your dues three classification, dense central corneal staining, or even any central corneal staining really qualifies there, or dense staining anywhere in the cornea, you know, they, what it was able to do is kind of really maintain things. That was really the, the ability. It didn't show any change in, in density of the nerves, didn't show any change in sensitivity, and pain scores were not dramatically changed in any way, nor was the questionnaire, uh, the being a speed questionnaire. And statistically, in the cryopreserved amniotic membrane or prokara group, it was highly statistical, 0.001s and 0.01s across the board. And, and it was pretty dramatic to see that difference. And then what I think what really stood out was the confocal microscopy results. When you looked at those in particular, you found that the uh, nerve density improved, which is what you want to see, that you can actually alter nerves and you can affect them and bring back sensitivity, which was also shown, and perhaps that's why the pain scores improved so much. So not only did you have the entire nerve morphology improving, uh, you're also getting improvements in sensitivity, <clears throat> and especially and most important for us in patient symptomatology. And so it was kind of a, a neat study to show that. You look at the images, the irregularity on topography was greatly improved. You see a lot of those. If you look at, obviously, the, the confocal microscopy images, you can see a dramatic improvement in the density. Uh, so I think it was very helpful. Now, dendritic nerves didn't really change, meaning that if you let an eye get too far and you start to form these dendritic, which are not normal nerves that become sensitive to things they shouldn't be sensitive to, uh, like a neuropathic dry eye, 
you know, maybe in time, Crop Preserve has a shot at that because it did improve the other areas, but in that three-month time, that was the one area we cannot really do a lot about, which tells us, again, that the sooner you do something like amnionic membrane, the better for the patient. You don't let them get to that stage. You can still affect the nerves. You can catch it at an earlier stage. Now, that being said, the density, even in those patients with cryopreserved amniotic membrane, improved. There was no change in the conventional treatments. You know, I understand why this would rank among some of your favorite studies because, you know, if you treat a lot of dry as you do and as I do, you know, oftentimes we're just trying to let patients not get worse, uh, particularly in those severe cases. And to see something where you see actual improvement and, and you know, improvement that you can identify like nerve regeneration is, is quite significant. I think that's a very remarkable study. You did a beautiful job of sort of outlining it for us. You know, as we look at practitioners who are listening and really are wanting to consider incorporating amniotic membranes in their practice, you know, I'm going to ask you a question, but as I lead into that question, I'd like to, you know, kind of get your impression on a, on a few barriers that I see. You know, when I first started uh, using amniotic membranes, you know, my knee jerk was, gosh, that you know, Procara looks like it's going to be tough to get in. It looks like, you know, the, the dry uh, membrane is going to be easier and more comfortable for the patient. And what I found in my personal experience is it was exactly the opposite of what I thought. The Procara was much easier to get in and was fairly comfortable for the patient. As you kind of touched on earlier, you know, I was noticing I had to use more than one uh, of the dehydrated membranes, and sometimes they would work well and sometimes not as well. But, you know, the ease of application I found to be much better with Procara, although to look at it, it felt a little intimidating at, at first glance. So how do you think uh, doctors can incorporate and, and use uh, a cryopreserved membrane in their practice? Sure. I agree with you more. <clears throat> uh, you're 100% right in how you described it. And, you know, basically, if you can fit a contact lens on a patient, you can fit a preserved amniotic membrane. So that is really what it comes down to. It, it, it's just a case of, you know, having the patient look down, inserting the lens under the upper lid, having the patient look up and putting it under the lower lid and then checking for centration. So, you know, one toolbox kit I didn't mention uh, it would be scleral lenses. And the reason I didn't put that in there is because I know that's more of a specialty area, but that'd be a wonderful tool. But if you can fit that, then, then this is even, you know, cryobserved amniotic membrane is even easier. You're just placing it on there, and, and that's all there is really to it for these patients. Now, I think the stuff that my, our colleagues need to be aware of are, one, setting the right expectations, and they're going to need a few things for that. Number one, they're going to have to tell patients that they are going to typically feel this. It, it does have a little irritation, so I tend to recommend you tape the eye closed. I, I found that if I have patients, you know, tape and just leave it that way, I can get you know, extended periods of time of effectiveness. In fact, I had a lady who had one of the really severe limbo stem cell deficiency. She has a lot of systemic issues, but uh, limbo stem cell deficiency, a lot of corneal epitheliopathy. I just saw her this week as well. It was kind of an interesting clinic week. And she came back. Uh, she was 2,400 from limbo stem cell deficiency, best corrected. That's how irregular her cornea was. We placed this on there. She came back at the end of the week. I put it in Monday. came back Friday. It was still completely intact, so I left it. So okay, let's see you back on my next clinic day is Tuesday. came back intact. I said, okay, Friday. And I get a call on her the following Sunday. She said, I think it's out because I can really feel it now. It's in my eye. I'm aware of it. I think it's probably digested or gone. And so I bring her in on Sunday. Sure enough, it is. They take it out. And I saw her this week, which is uh, three weeks afterwards. She's 2025. So if you can leave something in there that long, you get this 
incredible effect that's way more than just the five days. Now, of course, once it's digested, you have to take it out. There's no benefit. In fact, at that point, it could it could actually, you know, be harmful to the point. I mean, you don't want to leave it in there. For, it's not comfortable for the patient. So, But if it's intact and you can leave it, that's the kind of response that you can get. And so I like the idea of taping. So you're going to have to have some sort of surgical tape or face tape available to you to do that. You're going to have to have some saline, like contact lens saline, to rinse it out. Or if you really want to be a purist, you can use buffered or non-preserved saline. But you have to rinse this really well. There's some amphotericin on it that helps preserve it and keep any sort of fungi involved. But that can burn if you put it directly in the eyes. You have to rinse that off about three or four times. Um, literally, we're talking like one or two minutes of rinsing is ideal. And it's really easy to do. Just hold it, rinse it through. In fact, even the container helps you to rinse it really nicely. And then the next thing you do is set the right expectations. You're probably going to feel this, but I'm going to tape your eyes closed so that you don't feel it too bad. And I get everything from patients saying, I never felt it at all, to patients saying, oh, I couldn't wait to get this out of my eye. So you've got to really set the right expectations. And then ideally, and I'm not promoting my own tools and instruments, but you know, sometimes a jeweler's forceps a little too sharp to get underneath that and pull it out. And when you have to finally remove it. And it's sometimes difficult to use fingers to get underneath it and a little bit of risk there too. You don't want to stab the patient with sharp jewelers. You really need to get, uh, you know, kind of a blunt set of forceps, or I designed a set through Bruder that um, has a, it's actually on the back end, it's dull, so you can't actually hurt anything, but it's exactly the shape of the ring, so you can grab the edge, lift it, and pull it out. It just makes it easier and simpler. Perhaps, perhaps you're too modest to promote that tool, but I love that tool, the the Bruder Procara forceps remover that, carries your name. It's a, it's a beautifully designed tool, and the, the jeweler's forceps are far too sharp for me to ever feel comfortable removing it, because if I'm requiring a tool, you know, it, it's tough to get in there. I had a patient the other day, it was a 93-year-old uh, woman who came in, and she had very small fissures, but I was, you know, fairly determined that I was going to be using this Procaro for her, and it worked like a charm to get that out, and if you're a new practitioner and thinking about incorporating something like Procare in your office, having that in your toolbox is essential to me because you don't want to get caught in a position where you feel uncomfortable removing uh, the ring. And that tool is so easy to use. I, I really did like it. So I commend you for the creation. Thanks, Whitney. Thank you. And, you know, I think to the end point, like you said, this is something every one of our colleagues can do. It's, it's that simple. And they're often shocked, like you mentioned, when they first put it in or they observe, a, you know, you or I or someone, you know, doing a demonstration of it. They look at it and their job practice drops and say, hey, that's it. I can't believe that was it. That's right. Exactly. 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 Well, Paul, you've really enlightened our audience. I've learned a lot as well, particularly about the John study. I really thank you for taking your time uh, to discuss amniotic membranes with us, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Whitney. It's an honor. Thanks. And thank you for joining us for dryacoach.com. We'll be having more, more podcasts soon. Keep listening. <laughs>